Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 24 of the National Security Law Podcast. It's brought to you by the Robert Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, June 20th, and I am Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. And Bobby, um, it's the summer? It is definitely the summer. It's, a, <laughs> it's gotten a bit warm and testy here in Austin. You know, it's funny. I was in Washington yesterday actually standing outside of the Supreme Court when whole lot of stuff was going down, um, and it was like 82 and a little muggy, you know, pretty typical for sort of June in D.C., yeah. and everyone was complaining about it. And I was like, this is lovely. <laughs> this, is, this is brisk. This is like 20 well, degrees cooler chilly. than it is back home. Fetch me my cardigan. <laughs> Not quite, but you know. <laughs> it's funny how where you stand is a function of where you sit. Absolutely. You know, you get used to anything, but it is definitely, summer's arrived and not a moment too soon. Indeed. So, Bobby, it's Tuesday, uh, June, you know, 20th, yep. right? I think if my math yep, is yep. right. Um, we're actually, it's, a, it's an unusual morning edition of our podcast. That's right. We've actually organized ourselves a bit more. You can tell it's summer. We have a little more free time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know we should be we should be watching the the live broadcast of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee we hearing on the AUMF. How I could, know how could we not be watching that? Because we both know what everyone's going to say. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, so we, we could re- we we could we could we could spontaneously enact a version of it that would probably be you know pretty close to home. Could be. Well, I'm, I'm glad, though. I think we're both glad that at least there is some congressional activity to at least keep the spotlight on that issue, uh, whether something comes of it. Doubtful. Doubtful. Um, but there is some AUMF news, Bobby. One of the things we're going to talk about on today's episode 24, which I, I, I in brackets, dubbed the second Kobe Bryant number edition. I was trying to think of some kind of, you know, Kiefer Sutherland 24 type. Well, I didn't want to really talk about that 24. <laughs> yeah, the, the remake didn't catch on. Did you notice that? I, I mean, I have problems with or the, the original. So, you know, yeah. if you really want. If, we go, if we're going to go there, it's not going to end well. So, so Bobby, <laughs> on our episode 24... What are we talking about? Okay, so we've we've got, as you mentioned a moment ago, this episode in which uh, U.S. Navy aircraft shot down a Syrian government aircraft on Sunday afternoon, which raises uh, a fascinating array of both uh, domestic law and international law issues. So we'll and we'll, geopolitical we'll, questions about, like, no. you know, <laughs> yeah. It, I, we should always add. I, I tend to gloss past this, just thinking in a lawyerly way. But of course. As interesting as the legal issues are, that, of course, is not the most pressing question right. with respect to a situation. Wait, you were in an inverted 5G dive with a MiG-28? <laughs> yeah, it was what – is, what does is Goose say? Uh, uh, um, at, at what distance? And Goose says, like, two, two meters. Two meters? <laughs> <laughs> One of Val Kilmer's finer lines. We, we bring up Val Kilmer again. Hey, nice. it's, it's a theme. Okay, so we've got that. We've, of course, got a, a major Supreme Court decision uh, touching on Bivens' doctrine, which is right up your wheelhouse. Dun, and, dun, dun. and I don't think this one made Steve happy. <laughs> what What led you to think that? The angry 16-tweet tweet storm, the 2,500-word <laughs> blog post, or just my general disposition? Well, I guess we're going to find out. So stay tuned <laughs> for a discussion of Ziegler versus Abbasi. And then um, I think that actually will lead... I don't know what order we're going to do this in, but that actually does give us an occasion to touch base with the travel ban litigation, which on a weekly basis does give us some, you know, some procedural developments that are that are interesting. So we'll flag those. Yep. And I think actually that'll probably, you know, if we want to keep this a little bit shorter, I think that'll probably do it. Well, especially because, you know, you and I both really want to spend some time carefully thinking about um, how the AUMF 
maps on and how the UN Charter maps on to the various legal and strategic questions raised by the coming seventh season of Game of Thrones. Absolutely. This is this is real lawyer's work. We've got to do it. I mean, you know, it, are the White Walkers a, a, a derivative of some other group against which the, you know, King's Landing Council had <laughs> previously authorized force? <laughs> or is is Jon Snow's Merry, Merry Band of Northmen an associated force of, of the Dothraki Horde coming oh across the Okay, the this Salt is going to be fun. I'm tempted to just give sea? short shrift to all the actual legal issues so we can get to that. But dear, dear, dear HBO, if you need some legal analysis. That's right. Maybe maybe, uh, maybe at the Citadel they've got some lawyers that are working these mm. issues. Mm, yes. Maester Chesney. Oh, heavens. <laughs> all right, so why, but why don't we start with Syria? I mean, because I think that's, okay, that's yeah. you know, I, if we start with the Basi, I may never stop. Okay, well, then let's definitely start with this. <laughs> so this is a really, it's a fascinating fact pattern. Um, first, the basic facts. On Sunday afternoon around 4.30, um, in an area in the, in the larger Raqqa region, Syrian Democratic Forces ground personnel, and okay, this is a, this is a, uh, a, a rebel group that is U.S.-backed. Um, Ground forces uh, came under assault from pro-regime forces. Now, it wasn't clear to me whether the ground assault around 4.30 that afternoon was actually Syrian army or if it was, you know, maybe some Iranian-supported group. Who knows who it was? It was pro-regime forces. It's the Libyans. It's, <laughs> nice nice Back to the Future reference, Thank Marty. You. Thank you. Um, so there's, there's a ground assault, which is quickly uh, halted, it appears, by a low-altitude show of force by coalition aircraft. So they, they buzz the battlefield, and it causes separation. Um, and at the same moment, we are told there was some attempt by somebody to use the U.S.-Russia deconfliction communication system, no doubt to send the message, hey, you know, tell these guys to back off. We will use force uh, if they keep attacking our, uh, our coalition partners on the ground here. Whatever became of that, around 6.30 p.m., an Su-22 Syrian Air Force ground attack jet uh, came into the area and dropped at least some ordnance on the SDF fighters and almost immediately, immediately was then shot down by a U.S. Navy uh, F-A-18E Super Hornet, uh, which I understand was from the USS George Bush, which is on station in the, in the uh, Mediterranean. So... We have shot down a Syrian government manned aircraft. Now, this is not the first use of force uh, involving our aircraft in Syria in terms of air-to-air combat. We've, we've shot down some drones. In fact, we shot down another drone just a couple of hours ago. These are often described as Iranian-made drones. Right. The, the impression one gets is that these are not Syrian government drones. These are actually drones that are, you know, Republican Guard, that, that sort of— um, but, but, Revolutionary Guard Corps type. But, but when's the last time that a U.S. military aircraft shot down a foreign flag military yep. aircraft in a you know intentionally in a combat situation? It's a great trivia question. Of course, it's more serious than than trivia. Uh, my understanding is the answer is ninety nine over Serbia, or, or over uh, maybe Kosovo is the more specific way to describe that it. way. <laughs> that way, but in the Balkans, um, that may be wrong. Um, but you know, manned aircraft uh, don't mix it up with us for good reason too often. But this is hence my Top Gun reference. Yeah, exactly. Now, now, so what's interesting when I saw that ninety nine reference, it did raise a question in my mind: uh, Were there no uh, Iraqi manned aircraft that got into the skies during the opening days of Operation Iraqi Freedom in March two thousand three? It's an interesting question. I mean, I mean it so, would make sense, right? right? Like, yeah. like who wants to get what? What fool would get in the cockpit and take, <laughs> and take off to? But the, I mean, the larger point is this is a you know this is a dramatic. Shift. Uh, shift is too strong. This is a dramatic um, moment. 
right. is, and it also underscores something about the changing technology of aircraft. Air to air combat that involves an unmanned aircraft just doesn't raise the stakes as when you kill someone who's who's right. We just, we, just don't, we, just, we just don't react the same way. Right, right. So, so it's a it's a much bigger escalation from the Syrian government perspective and from our perspective, and, of and course, apparently it, from the Russians. perspective. And of course, the Russians, as as the protectors of the Syrians, have immediately got involved. Now, is there's I think there's a lot more angst here, perhaps than than there ought to be. It's a very serious situation. But let's recall that the the Turks actually shot down a Russian fighter jet and killed our Russian pilot. And they, they all got past that pretty quickly. So we, we shouldn't assume this is going to immediately spiral out of control. But it's a big deal. I mean, so, so so let me see. I mean, Bobby, this is you wrote a great post on Lawfare this morning. Folks should go read it. Don't take my word for it. Um, Here's $5. Thanks. Eh, sure. But let me see if I have this. Let me, let me see if I can sort of frame this, right? That the real point of this story, that the real sort of impact of this story um, is that for what appears to be the first time, the U.S. military has directly engaged and intentionally targeted and indeed killed, right, a Syrian military officer, um, right, as such, not because he or she was in the process of attacking the U.S. or some U.S. position um, as part of the conflict in Syria, that it's, it's sort of direct state on state, which raises a whole bunch of legal and policy questions. Yes, although I guess I would say that we had a, a less sensitive version of this, amazingly enough, larger scale but less sensitive in that the uh, April chemical weapons response right. where we targeted the Syrian airfield. Same thing. It's just that there's something that feels different, whether it should or shouldn't, feels different about well, it. And, that, and that, that had the humanitarian you know, implications. Right. And so is that a, it's a distinction. Is it a distinction that matters? Right. That's an interesting question. But either way, whether it's entirely fresh or just you know freshly reminding us of right. something that came up before, two sets of legal issues. Uh, is this compatible with the UN Charter, given the, the international law question? The international law question. After all, this is this is a uh, military. Uh, this is the armed forces of Syria in their territory. It's their country. Right. The, why doesn't this violate Article Two Four? Yep. Uh, and then the domestic law question, which is uh, basically a war powers question. How is it exactly? You know, what's the source of the authority to have done this? Or, or maybe the answer is no. So let's let's kind of talk through this. Uh, maybe uh, you want let's do the international law question first. Because that's easier? <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're both kind of a mess. But th- this whole thing has sort of the feel right. of a final exam question, doesn't right. it? It, it? Indeed it does. We so, As we are starting to just get back our evaluations. Yes, yeah, Steve, Steve and I just read the evaluations from our co-taught spring uh, counterterrorism law course. And what we learned was that we had a much better time than the students, apparently. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Any listener can sympathize with that. Indeed. All right. So, um, so Bobby, the UN Charter question, I mean, here we are, the United States, using force. Uh, it's an armed attack, right, on the territory of a foreign sovereign. Right. So it's, it's, so let's start with the, what's the first question we want to ask? Is it a use of force? Yes. Of course, of course it's a use of force. It's, it's military assets. Uh, it's an air-to-air combat situation. Uh, is it on the territory of a foreign sovereign? Yes. And so we've got what it presents as a, a, a de facto or default uh, you know, problem under 2-4. You need, you need a reason why this isn't a violation. Right. Of and just for, for, for our non-international law listeners, right, when Bobby shorthands 2-4, what he means is Article 2, subparagraph 4 of the UN Charter. Which basically says, no, as a default matter, no resort to force or even the threat of force in international affairs if it interferes with the political independence or, or territorial integrity of a, of a sovereign state, which Syria is for you know for better or worse, it's, right. it's their country. Um, so there are lots of exceptions here, uh, but the the main ones, the ones people agree about, 
aren't applicable. We don't have a Security Council resolution under Chapter 7 authorizing the use of force. We can note it, set it aside. Um, what about, Steve, what about Article 51 self-defense? Yeah, so I guess, you know, I don't see, Bobby, what the self-defense argument is here. I mean, the, there's no suggestion that the use of force against the SU-22 was to protect U.S. forces, right? That if anything, it was part of this attack on SDF, right? Uh, SDF troops who are certainly our allies in as much as we have allies. Now, Article 51 does refer to self-defense both in the individual or self true self-defense mode, but also in collective self-defense mode, but it's collective self-defense of other member states. Right. And and the SDF is not uh, another member state. So the non-state actor element of our coalition partner here enters into the picture in a way that makes it hard to just point to Article 51 and say, well, hey, the SDF was under attack. We're, we defend, defend we're defending Turkey. Uh, right. So, you know, we there is in the larger fight against the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, there is a big Article 51 uh Role and that's because we are acting in collective self-defense of the government of Iraq at Iraq's explicit invitation. Right. So, and, so if and, it were so if it were an ISIS SU twenty two, this would be a different conversation. Exactly. So and so the that gets you and indeed all sorts of arguments can get you to the why are we using forces against the Islamic State? The trick here is that this isn't a use of force against the Islamic State. It's the Syrian government. That complicates things greatly. Now, that question is already presented by the, the sheer fact that we're using force against their wishes inside their territory in general, even when we're just attacking the Islamic State. The answer that's been offered uh, repeatedly to explain, well, how do you make that use of force by America inside Syria compatible with Article 2.4, given Syria's opposition? The answer, Steve, has long been, well, the Syrian government, it's not that they're unwilling, but they are unable to suppress the threat emanating from the Islamic State from within Syria's own territory. And that, in effect, is a waiver of their objections under 2.4. If they can't deal with it and this threat is spilling over to the magnitude it did, something's got to be done to defend Iraq, to defend others. Uh, and so that's been the theory as to why we're there. And it, it's received, you know, it's always controversial to invoke unwilling and unable, but there's been more endorsement or acceptance of it in this context than yes. we've seen previously, say, with U.S. drone strikes in Pakistan. Right. Right. So the thing is, up till this point, and up till the point where we had the chemical weapons strike, but we'll, we'll set that aside as sort of its own sort of chemical weapons WMD-oriented thing, we haven't been, on that basis, actually attacking the Syrians. So what we have here seems to be a clash between, on one hand, the logic of unwilling and able, which says it's okay for you to be there in that territory using force against the Islamic State because the Syrians can't deal with it on their own, which opens the door to defending yourself if someone interferes with you in that mission. And in this case, the argument would have to be, by extension, we've got to be able to preserve and protect the allies, the non-state actors, the SDF, with whom we are working and indeed partially depending upon, mm-hmm. along with some Kurdish forces and others, uh, to actually carry out the ground game against the Islamic State. So the logic is, once you're in, some things go with that. By but, the how, way of but, but how defense. much? I mean, right, so so surely it's not the case. And, you know, it's always, you know, <laughs> I am serious. I don't call me surely. But surely it's not the case that that argument gets us to, you know, being able, you know, massive ground and air operations to topple the Assad regime. Right. So 
uh, on one hand, you've got the logic of unwilling and unable, perhaps explaining why you can do collective self-defense for your coalition partners there. On the other hand, the fact remains that the regime, for better or worse, the Assad regime, still the, the government there, and they've got rebels. And no one would, I don't think anyone argues that the Assad regime uh, has no right to fight the rebels, right? And this is a rebel group. Now, in this context, as I understand it, they're engaging in or in position to engage in anti-Islamic state operations. They weren't you know, moving on the capital. They weren't moving against Syrian government forces. And so the question is, is, is it the case that the right UN charter analysis answer is that, of course, the Syrian government can and is permitted to attack uh, rebel forces, and it would be inappropriate for the United States to interfere with those attacks insofar as it's a context that is rebels versus Syrian government, right. but that the answer changes once it's a context where it's at least plausible to say that those rebels in that setting, in that place, are actually fighting ISIS. Fighting ISIS. Yeah. I mean, I, I, listen, I, I know that that sounds super technical, but I think the alternatives are all worse. Yeah. I think that's right. I, I think that uh, it, I think many of us hear it and think, oh, this just seems like such a clash of two incompatible legal analyses. Um, and, and the only way you can kind of make them live with one another is to say, well, it kind of depends on where those forces are and what they're doing. Are they engaged in right. ISIS operations or anti-regime operations? Right. And, and, if it's, and, that's the and, and, and if it's not clear, you know, obviously there'll be some margin of discretion on the part of the commander. But, Bobby, there's no suggestion from the stories we've seen, right, that this was that, right, that this was an example where the U.S. really wasn't sure that this was yeah. a Syrian military aircraft that it was offensively engaging and shooting down. Yeah, no, I think they clearly knew what they knew what they were up against. Now, it's interesting. We say the commander. It, some people said, you know, it's entirely possible this decision was made by a pilot yeah. uh, in a combat air patrol type situation. And that the decision wasn't a, a high-level decision, but within the rules of engagement, defense of the partner forces in the counter-Islamic state fight. I imagine that's probably right. Okay, so, so, so but then, I mean, so, right. It, it's entirely possible that this was not policy. Yeah. Well, well, it is, but that it was policy that was baked into the rules of engagement on the front end. No, no right, but, but the ROE might say, right? I mean, the ROE might say, yes, you can use you know, offensive force where you are of the view, right, yeah. that the that the attack that the target you are attacking was attacking SDF forces yep. engaged against ISIS. Yes. Yes. Right. So you could have a one fighter pilot, right? One F eighteen fighter pilot making one factual error. Right. Although here, I guess it wasn't an error, right? I mean, we we are the SU twenty two did drop ordnance on the SDF. No, fighters. no, no, I know, but 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 the pilot may not have known that the SDF was not at that moment engaged with ISIS, right? That the that the that the that 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 was the Syria versus SDF conflict, not the SDF versus ISIS. Oh, conflict. I see. I guess so. I think given the location, the Raqqa position, I think clear. that the whole thing is under the this is the fight against the Islamic State umbrella. If the same forces right. had hopped in a convoy and made their way towards Damascus, right. I think it would have been different. Well, but so then the question becomes, right, how big a deal is this legally as an international law matter? Like, is this, did we, whether it was the pilot or whoever drafted the ROE or someone else, right, did that person cross a really important international law line? I think that if you buy the analysis I sketched a moment ago, where the way you reconcile the, the interest of yep. Syrian Syria's government as hey, a sovereign. It's worth what our listeners are paying for. <laughs> well, that's true. Hey, by the way, send a contribution. We'll take checks. Um, <laughs> I think that if you buy that distinction, that's how you uh, uh, 
draw the boundaries between unwilling enables self-defense consequences, yep. but the, the government's own ability to defend itself against rebels, I think that in this situation, as long as you're defending uh, SDF forces in and around Raqqa, where we're about to have this, you know, big fight with the Islamic State, I think that's a plausible distinction. I think that the logic of it runs out insofar as you then start doing the sort of the Libya 2011 thing, right. where what you're actually doing is providing uh, air air patrol protection for forces moving to topple the government. Right, at which point, and, and so then the question is whether this becomes a bootstrap. Yeah, and I, I think that you've got to, you've got to have some ability to logically right. limit uh, the self-defense so, so, consequences. So let's briefly turn to the domestic law discussion, because yeah. as, as we said, right, we're having this conversation we're recording this podcast at the same time as the senate foreign relations committee is having a hearing on the NUF. bobby just a quick note strange that it's the senate foreign relations committee right and not the senate armed services committee except of course that the traditional uh venue within uh the committee structures for considering declarations of war or, or aumf says yeah. it's always emanated out of the foreign relations committee structure except lately well, except that nothing, right? Nothing <laughs> yeah. new. Yeah. It's not since 2002. Yep. Um, so I, I think it's traditional for them to be engaged on it. Uh, I hope they find the you know, ability to squeeze into their discussions <laughs> some of what we're talking about here, because I think it's kind of a cool Article 2 slash AUMF issue. From a war powers perspective, what made this okay? It's not like we have some AUMF that authorizes the use of force against the Syrian government, which is, in effect, what happened here. So, Steve, what do you think? Is, is Can you get there through the AUMF? Can you get there through sort of prize cases, notions of traditional self-defense? Um, I'm happy to – I'll hold forth in a second about my theory of this. I'm skeptical. So, okay. so let me start there. So, so, so let me start with the prize cases, right? I mean, I don't, I don't really see the argument. I don't see the argument here. I mean, in, unless any attack on SDF forces triggers the U.S.'s inherent self-defense power under Article Two of the Constitution, and that would be a pretty sweeping statement, yeah. right? I have a hard time seeing how this attack in particular would give rise to that authority, unless there's some, unless there were maybe U.S. troops embedded with those SDF. Which troops, they well could be. But which we haven't heard about yet, right? Yeah, That's interesting to say. So, that we so I'm taking the facts as they're sort right. of currently being portrayed in the media, which is standalone Syrian military attack on SDF forces yep. without U.S. involvement. That's right. Yeah, the hypothetical presents in a clean way. And and in that cleanly presented hypothetical, I don't see the Article 2 argument. Um, AUMF is, I think, a little trickier because of how we've defined associated forces, <laughs> right? Um, which is, and, and by we, let's... Right, because of how successive presidents have defined associated right. forces, not Congress. Good job, they are Congress. Right, although they though they indirectly endorsed it by in the detention context saying, yeah, absolutely. Right, in a statute AMF that says, includes. but we're only talking about detention. Right, but but it it would be oh, it'd be quite odd. Well, okay, so we've got the associated forces concept. So let's start there. Let's right. let's start by asking, well, can you just say, look, associated forces? Famously, people say it's been stretched, you know, beyond recognition. Therefore. You can always just tack on the Syrian government. No, of no, course, no, no, no. That's but, not going to work. Right, no, right. But here's the question. The question is, insofar as the SDF is a coalition partner in our armed conflict against ISIS. There you go. Right. Um, is Syria's attack on the SDF, right, something that suggests that Syria is, at least when it's attacking the SDF, an associated force of ISIS. Right. So my, my view on this— And, and I, by the way, I cannot believe I just said that sentence out loud. That was a fantastic sentence. I want you to graph it for me later. <laughs> give, me that, give me that breakdown, elementary school style. So I don't think you can get there with associated forces no. because the, it's, the associated forces concept has, has long been this decade and a half— 
Associated forces of al-Qaeda or the Taliban engaged in hostilities against the United States or its coalition partners. Uh, if we only look at that back half of it, we say, oh, hey, it's, it's, it's hostilities against our coalition partners, which includes the SDF. You're missing the front half of it or that analysis misses the front half of it. You've, you've got to be affiliated right. with, with al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Right. And it's hard to say that Syria is associated with ISIS when Syria is in the midst of a bitter war against ISIS. Right. So, and, I, and I don't think anyone would actually argue that they qualify. Anyone? Well, yeah, maybe, that, maybe we should never rule out anyone. Bob, but see 2017. <laughs> really, the past couple of years, we we don't want to let 2016 off the hook. It was yeah, a fair enough. Year too. How many celebrities, you know, bit it that year? That was a tough year. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so the argument can't be associated forces. No, nope. but I don't think that ends the analysis. I think the real question here is whether it's read into the AUMF or whether you get it directly from Article Two. Is there an implied self-defense authority? There, there certainly is an implied self-defense authority somewhere, either Article Two or the AUMF. When the attack is directly on U.S. forces. Of course. And everyone agrees with that. Yes. The interesting question in this fact pattern is, when can you extend it to collective self-defense of third parties? Now, in this morning in my post, here's what I argued. I said that you got to disaggregate that category. Third parties encompasses, well, right. Not, every, all third, right. not all third parties are equal. Exactly. So you've got some scenarios where the third party, let's just hypothesize, are just utterly unconnected to anything the U.S. military is otherwise doing by way of combat operations. That is a sharp contrast with this situation where you have integrated combat operations. We are their air arm. We probably do have all sorts of, uh, you know, advise and assist by, with, and through type involvement with them. Um, or at least we're certainly working in support of them as they advance on Raqqa. So they're what I would describe as a coalition partner in the combat integration sense. We are conducting coalition operations in the field. That to me is whatever we think in general of third-party self-defense as an implied term for an AUMF or as implied in Article II authority. I think I completely agree that that can't be the general rule, but I think it probably does have to extend to the people you're actually in battle alongside in an integrated combat operation setting. Or at least I'm willing to go that far. At all times? Uh, I think that the the controlling consideration is ne- uh, necessary and proportional. Right. Necessity and proportionality. Um, much as we use, we clearly have in the doctrine of collective self-defense and regular self-defense in international law, a necessity and proportionality concept to cabin uh, the, the reach of that type of intervention. I think by extension, the same logic applies at the domestic law level. It's got to be proportional and sensible. So you couldn't decide, we're, we're going to topple the regime in Damascus to, to create space and elbow room for our coalition partners, the rebels whom the Damascus regime dislikes. Right. But when a Damascus regime aircraft is dropping ordnance on our coalition partners as they advance with our support on our objective, I think we do have the right to defend them. And that that's either coming from Article 2 or you read it into whichever of the AUMFs one might claim is otherwise responsible for us being there in the first instance. So that's very good. Um, and, and, and indeed, I dare say, if, if the administration is looking for a top national security lawyer, that they've, they've found their <laughs> Are man. Are you saying I've just provided them a cover that's plausible? I, I think you have. Uh, because it's persuasive. No. So, so, so I mean, I think, I, think, I think our listeners just heard the absolute best case scenario. And that'll be it for the podcast today. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk Games of Thrones now. Um, I think I think I think I think I think folks just heard the absolute like most defensible, most sophisticated, like best theory for all of this. Here comes the but <laughs> <laughs> but you were doing so well. Oh, you I know. 
But I just, I don't know how you, like, to, so there are one of two stopping points to the analysis, right? There's the stopping point Bobby offers, which is, yes, we can come to their aid up to the point where it's necessary and proportional to fulfill the underlying common objective of the military operation. Okay. Right? That's the, that's the Chesney like thesis, it. right? The yes. Chesney proviso. Um or you could have the you know more radical view um, that we actually can't right um, get involved in a conflict between an ally and a separate nation state period without some more specific authorization or you, you or, could, or some but or I don't think right, you or some direct attack on you or right I mean I'm, yeah. I'm not talking about classic self defense right that yeah. that beyond this that that beyond the hypothetical of defending U S troops and U S interests and U S installations that when it's purely Syria versus SDF. The fact that SDF is a coalition partner in our conflict with ISIS doesn't get us to, we can therefore use offensive force, even limited to proportional necessary, right, um, in that context. Let me, let me give you a, a hypo that I think you'll find challenging. What if, forget SDF, what if it was British, Air, Royal Air Force, yeah. and you've got one jet with two you know, Syrian fighters on its tail, and there's an American jet in position to render aid, and otherwise the British fighter is going to get shot down. So that is harder. I mean, I, I think that is a harder hypothetical. Yeah. I'm still like, I'm still skeptical in that circumstance. So, so we're talking about domestic law right now, right? right? Yeah, absolutely. Just I'm still skeptical law. in that in that moment that the that Congress in September of 2001 or whatever month, March of 2002, right? I don't October 2000. I don't even remember when the Iraq yeah. AUMF was passed. Um, right? The Congress was actually thinking that one of the things it was doing was authorizing us to come to the aid of a third party against a foreign state, right, um, other than Iraq, right, because that might have been covered by the 2002 Those directly Iraq. covered. Right. Um, to, um, in a situation in which, our own, in which our own troops or installations were not under threat. So I, I disagree, in, subject to the caveat that I'm only extending the cloak beyond our own forces right. to those who are actually in integrated combat operations in that theater as part of I the no, thing. I, that, I, I understand that that's yeah. the extent. So, so listen, Bobby, your extension makes a ton of normative sense. Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with that. My concern is that it's a much harder line. You're not buying it as a statutory interpretation. It's a much harder line to read in the statute. Let's, let's make it an Article 2 thing then. <laughs> then, it, then it's just Article Two, baby. But how is that self-defense? I, so I guess, I guess that then you have to convince me that somehow, like collective self-defense, really is a deep Article Two theory, and I think that's very controversial. I think, I think it partakes of, of our own self-defense because of the integration of the combat operations. So, so okay. So I'm trying to think of an example. So, like, like I'm trying to think of a, of a hypothetical to, to mess with you here. <laughs> no, no, no. One's enough. Right? We're, we're done. So, so, so World War Two. Yeah. Right when we are coordinating our attack with the Soviets, right in parts of Germany, late in 19, or early, you know, late okay. in the campaign right. in 1945. Okay, right, and um, let's and let's say that there's a sort of anti-Soviet right rebel group, right within sort of Soviet-occupied Poland, right, who's attacking the Red Army. Right, partisan partisans who are not German, right? Polish partisans right, right. who are who are gotcha. anti, right? Yeah. Who, who we're not at war with, right? Right. It's, we have no interest in them. Right. It's really your view that that Article Two would have allowed us to come to the self defense, the collective self defense of the Soviet forces being attacked by Polish partisans, simply because there was some degree of integration and uh, uh, on some parts along the front. 
So there's clearly, there are border issues like any doctrinal category. And the one I'm suggesting does have fuzzy borders like any other. But is actually, way, is that your way of saying that's a, that's a tough hypothetical? However, no, no, no. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give you that much. It's tough. But I don't think, it, but I don't think it's as positive because I think the answer is, yeah, if we, if we kind of made it more like this situation where there was some way in which U.S. air power was in a position to do something to preserve Red Army under this hypo. Yeah. The Red yeah. Army is our yeah. co-belligerent, yeah. and we're engaging in, in the closing down, closing the in pincer, on Germany, right? right. The, pincer, the large strategic pincer movement. Yeah. Um, if in some way or fashion this, the hypothesized non-state actor is degrading the military capability of the Red Army as it advanced, and there was some way in which we could you know, preserve them, yeah. then I think it would be included. Okay, but so you have to think that, or else you, or, I mean, exactly. Uh, of, yeah. of course, but that, that has to be your answer. But it doesn't strike me as as terribly problematic for my position that that is the necessary. Yeah, answer. I guess I just I just think that's I, I think that that's the kind of sort of non. I'm much more comfortable right resting as much the the further away we get from what is obviously, you know, inherent self defense. The happier I am making the claim one of you know affirmative positive legal authority, right, and not residual defensive authority. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it strikes me that like yes, I get the normative case in that in that yeah. circumstance for us having the authority to do so. I just think it's something Congress ought to speak to. Well, I, I certainly agree with the normative aspect of the congressional buy-in. Right? <laughs> but, no, but I mean, but now we're back to this. I mean, so so once again, right, a long <laughs> convoluted conversation you and I have had about the AUMF has reduced to you yeah, know really Congress really ought to weigh in on. Congress, no, 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 but but where I think they might act, where I think there might actually be a, a, a formal gap if they didn't, and where you're, and where you're less convinced. You know what's interesting is to ponder whether it would actually be worse if, let's say, Congress today was so excited about what what they say at the hearing that yeah. we talked about earlier, they decide, you know what, let's do pass the AUMF. That's what they do. And then and then somebody hears this podcast and says, you know what, I'll tell you a piece we got to get in there. Let's talk explicitly Not about serious. how there's a residual self-defense clause for anyone else who joins the fight against us. And it, let's put in a clause saying this extends to our coalition partners engaged in integrated combat operations, even if this new entrant that we're going to then use force against is a foreign state. That may actually be bad, right? Because there's, there's a certain benefit to the strategic ambiguity of not having that said expressly. Oh, I, listen, I agree with that. I mean, this goes back to a fight that Ben Winnis and I have had for 15 years, right, about sort of the problem of framework statutes, right, which is that you take away sort of benevolent ambiguity, um, yeah. right? But, I mean, I, I— It's the bug and the feature. Right. The problem is, is that, you know, no one who's actually—I shouldn't say no one— too many of the people who are actually dealing with this are not having the conversation at this degree of nuance. And so it's like, oh, so now we're, so now we're at war with Syria. Right. Excellent. Well, well and of course, the, you know, everyone else who's really engaged in thinking about this, they're not thinking about these issues at all. They're thinking about, okay, what's the latest disposition of, of Russian forces That's right. That's and, right. and all the things they should be thinking about, which are the policy, and, diplomatic, and, and, and so my and so, and so my concern, Bobby, is that folks look at this news story and say – and don't have your reaction, which is here's a super here's sophisticated a legal, legal argument <laughs> for why you know you could somehow fold this attack into either the AUMF or Article Two, depending upon what you ate for breakfast, right? Um, versus, oh well, here we go again, you know, and that and that the extension to an offensive use of force against a Syrian military aircraft, you know, has now crossed a line in many people's heads that ends with regime change. Well, so one thing I want to add in before we move on, and we should move on we should now move to Ziegler, on. Um, just a final bit of nerdistry. Yeah. Uh, this choice between whether you fold oh, in I'm, my, I'm about to out-nerd you on, on Bivens. Uh, like, you know. I, I, have, I have complete faith that you will. <laughs> um, 
this uh, choice between embedding the collective self-defense of your integrated combat partners, uh, either in Article 2 or, or the AUMF, there's one thing that really matters uh, that turns on whether you choose one or the other, if you have the choice. Um, war powers resolution clock considerations. Mm. If, you, if you think this sort of authority only derives from Article 2 and can't fairly be read as an implied term of the AUMF, then you don't have a statutory authorization for what That's you're right. doing. And if it goes on for a long enough time, you get a war powers problem. If you think it's actually just an implied term of the AUMF, you say, oh, no worries. It's all covered by the AUMF. We've already got authorization. Of course, that, that presupposes that you know Congress gives to to you know what's about the war powers resolution well there there's that right we we saw that we saw that show in in uh, libya several yep. years ago yep and actually a lot of people did seem to care that but when it was care part- enough when to it was, say when, something when about it was partisan right when it was oh the guy the president from a different party is doing something i don't like yeah it's always the case right that, yes. that congress shows interest in these things primarily when it when it actually pertains <gasps> to the partisan battles that's I, super helpful I, this is going to make me cynical right. let's move to a non-cynical topic bivens doctrine oh gosh no there. no I'm, not, I'm the cynic now so so steve the the, the fact pattern that are the roots whereas the story we just did, the fact pattern was from Sunday. Right. The fact pattern at the roots of Ziglar versus Abbasi. Uh, you got to go back a little bit further. Yeah, fall 2001. This is an old case. This is an old case. Give us the background. So a uh, super short version, right? So um, I think a lot of our listeners know that in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, the FBI um, went on a fairly aggressive roundup um, of men who fit certain profiles, um, predominantly Muslim men and or uh, men from countries you know, from, of Arabic descent, um, Arab descent, pardon me, um, right? Um, well, not just descent, right? Citizenship. Citizenship, um, who were arrestable on immigration charges, right? So, so the lawful, right, the lawful piece here is the government just said, listen, we have discretion to pick up, you know, lots of people on immigration charges who don't pick up. Let's go pick up all of the ones we can legally pick up who meet these certain criteria. So, so surge enforcement resources, but don't just deploy it in general. Like, don't go, don't go worry about uh, illegal immigration from whichever other countries. Right. Focus all these new resources on grabbing everybody who might be from the Middle East, et cetera. Or Muslim or right. both. Exactly. Um, although, although but, I, but, but the key is not just in general, but where you have grounds under immigration law to, in fact, to arrest to them. them. Okay. So where things get complicated is not the arrest, Bobby, right? I think everyone can see that the arrests were, even if somewhat pretextual, right, su- facially lawful. Right. Okay. Um, the problem is what happens once you have these folks in custody, right? I think the estimate is there's somewhere 800 or so, I think, yeah. is the is the number we end up with. Um, and what we what what is what the DOJ Inspector General actually found, which I think is the the least contestable version of the okay. facts here, right? Um, is that the government basically did two things that were, I'll just say, sketchy, right? One, Attorney General Ashcroft adopted a hold until cleared policy, which was that even if the government had no affirmative reason to suspect one of these immigrants who may not have been deportable, right, um, for terrorism-related activities, they were subject to detention until they were affirmatively cleared, right? So flipping the burden um, okay. from what had been prior practice. So the end result of that is you might be in uh, out of status, but you're not someone who should be detained pending you know, further hearings, but you're going to be detained anyways, unless and until there's an affirmative decision by somebody in the bureaucracy to say, all right, we vetted that guy. He's, he's not connected to al-Qaeda, et cetera. Correct. So that's the first sort of sketchy thing that happened. The second is for a subgroup right, um, of individuals within that cr- criterion, um, they weren't just detained. Um, they were sent to what's called the Supermax A, I think it's the AHU, Administrative Housing Unit, yeah. of the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, um, which is especially 
how shall I say, onerous conditions of confinement. Yeah, extreme, it's solitary, extremely limited communications, you and, know, and very limited, you know. And there's some allegations that some of them were actually even affirmatively abused, um, right, by some of the officials at MDC. Um, so, so all of this happening simply because you were subject to being arrested on immigration charges. Um, it turns out that none of the individuals who were picked up as part of the roundup were subsequently charged with terrorism-related conduct. A bunch were charged with, like, you know, various, you know, mundane criminal offenses. A bunch were deported. Yeah. Well, but, and, and I will say, I mean, that it doesn't follow that there wasn't some there there that I, no I, good was done from a counterterrorism listen, perspective. Listen, I, 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 I'm not saying that no good was done. I'm just saying that, like, you know— yeah, We don't know. There are no, no obvious examples, was, but we don't know. Okay. Um, so this leads to some civil litigation, right? And the civil litigation at first challenges every piece of it, um, right? It gets refined over the years, partly thanks to the Supreme Court's 2009 ruling in the Iqbal case, which is actually arising out of the same fact pattern. Um, in Iqbal, the court says a bunch of these claims hadn't been pled with sufficient plausibility. Right. Right, to survive this is a big 12B6 Civ Pro case. It's a big 12B6 Civ Pro case and Rule 8 of the Federal Civil Procedure. So this is basically the Iqbal sequel, right? Um, this is actually a class action um, brought by, I think it was eight of the detainees, right, on behalf of most of the rest of them. And Ziglar, the, the name defendant whose name showing up here, uh, he was James Ziglar, head of what was INS, INS back right. when that was part of... Justice Department right. pre Department of Homeland Security two thousand pre two thousand three right okay. right and indeed I mean one of the one oh, of he the, had another co defendant who who else well, is so the, so one of the many bizarre sort of twists of this case is one of the I think six named defendants was the then FBI director now special counsel Bob Mueller what what a grandstander here he is getting himself <laughs> getting himself into the headlines in a week where for the past few days at least he it was kind of quieting down and boom there he is again I I can only I can't wait for the 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 right wing attack on Mueller that you know you can't trust a special counsel who's a defendant in a Supreme Court case <laughs> well I I suspect we won't see any attacks that pick up on that particular Indeed. threat although I, I wouldn't put it no, you never okay. know all right so 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 I, I was about to say fast forward but it's hard to talk about a case that's been going for 15 years with the term fast forward um, <laughs> especially because of the posture we're still in so because of Iqbal and because of a bunch of other things that were happening on the procedural front right this case moves very slowly in the second circuit um, <laughs> I'd say um, the, but the by the time we get to what matters what's really left are two different sets of claims um, one is that some of these detainees were actually abused um, right while they were in the Supermax AHU um, at, at the Metropolitan Detention Center. And the other, Bobby, is that they were subjected in general to punitive, harsh conditions of confinement entirely because they're Muslim or from particular countries. Now, Steve, it's interesting to me because I don't follow this area that closely, but I would think I mean, this type of litigation, condition, condition of confinement litigation, mm -hmm. seems like it comes up all the time. How, what makes this so different? So the, the conditions of confinement litigation comes up a lot in states, Right, yeah. where you have a federal statute, 42 U.S.C. section 1983, that expressly authorizes private suits against state officers for violating federal law. So Congress had acted affirmatively to make clear that you can sue for damages in right. section 1983, right. and that's a common source of litigation. Correct. Federal conditions claims are harder because there is no similar statute, and so plaintiffs are left to what's called a Bivens cause of action, named after this 1971 Supreme Court case, Bivens versus six unknown named agents of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. <laughs> Um, where the Supreme Court, so we'll talk about this, but where the Supreme Court for the first time 
recognized a freestanding federal damages remedy um, in the Fourth Amendment, right, for, in that case, an unlawful search and seizure. Um, we'll come back to Bivens in a second, but okay. that's part of what makes this case different. So the, the plaintiffs bring a Bivens claim or a series of Bivens claims um, alleging that they were abused while they were in detention and alleging that they were subjected to punitive conditions of confinement on the basis of race and or national origin in violation of equal protection, right, that it's the kind of discrimination that the Constitution actually quite expressly forbids. So this is a request for a retrospective monetary damages. Well, because they're all out. Right. And not a request for prospective injunctive relief for, for others similarly situated or for themselves because, well, let's face it, it's been 15 years. It's been 15 this, years. This is a veritable bleak house type litigation. It really is. Although, although you know, the Chief Justice, I think, already used a bleak house analogy a couple of years ago oh, in an opinion. So you I can't think, do that. You got it only once every – well, this yeah. case will be around for another – 10 years, maybe? Yeah, no, no, it really won't, um, <laughs> thanks to what happened yesterday. Okay, so right. let's talk about what, what was at stake at this round in the court. Okay, so in the lower court, so the case goes to the Second Circuit. We're still in the motion to dismiss stage for a case that's been going on for 15 years. Um, the, a divided panel of the Second Circuit holds that based on the allegations in the complaint. Um, first, under Iqbal, the plaintiffs had stated plausible allegations that uh, former Attorney General John Ashcroft, former FBI Director Mueller, former INS Commissioner Ziglar, and three other officials um, were indeed directly involved and directly responsible for the alleged constitutional violation. So it wasn't just the guards at these places. This was top policy. This was policy, which actually matters in the case. Mm -hmm. um, second, that in that context, it was appropriate for courts to um, recognize a Bivens cause of action, that is to say, to allow plaintiffs like the Abbasi plaintiffs to pursue damages for these constitutional violations directly against the offending government officers, right? And then third, that based at least on the allegations in the complaint, the defendants were not entitled to what's called qualified immunity. Um, that is to say, right, that the plaintiffs, at least based on the allegations in the complaint, had established that the officers violated clearly established rights of which any reasonable officer in that position would have known. So that's what the Second Circuit said. Give me some context. Uh, I know enough about Bivens to know that it, rather than being treated over the ensuing years as just a blanket approval for constitutional damages yep. suits, yep. instead the courts have more or less taken a sort of a uh, an atomized approach, right? Where there's fact patterns that get grouped under certain headings, and well, this kind of case, yeah, right. you can have good ones and for bad that. ones, yeah. But that kind of case, no, that's not okay. W what was the lay of the land before this decision? Yeah, so this is a, this is to understand why Abbasi is such a, such a big deal. And let me just sort of jump ahead a second. Yeah. So, so to get to the punchline, a four to two court because Justices Gorsuch, Kagan, and Sotomayor did not participate, right? A 4-2 court basically resolves the case on the Bivens question, says nothing about the plausibility issue. They only talk about qualified immunity with regard to one of the statutory claims that was left in the case, um, not any of the constitutional claims. And on the constitutional claims, the court refuses to recognize a Bivens remedy, right? So that's the whole thing. Right. So they say this this is not this is not in the end circle you can sue for damages. Right. For. There's, and so therefore, there's no cause of action. Therefore, you cannot proceed, right? The okay. motion to dismiss should have been granted. Okay. Okay. Um, this is a huge deal. And it's not just a huge deal because of the national security implications, which we'll talk about in a minute. It's a huge deal because Bivens is not just about national security. Um, if an FBI officer unlawfully searches your house, but the search has ended, right, you don't have a prospective remedy against the FBI officer for the unlawful search, right? Your, your only remedy at that point is 
if you're prosecuted based on what he found, a suppression remedy in the criminal case. But Bobby, in most circumstances, you're not going to be prosecuted. So the only remedy is really damages. Well, if, if you were public spirited enough, could you press forward and try to get a, uh, you know, avoid the mootness issue by arguing this is capable of repetition but avoiding review and try to get prospective injunctive relief telling the government agents in the future, don't do that thing you did? If it were a policy, right? So if the FBI agent unlawfully searched your house in, in the execution of a policy that was still enforced and that would apply to future cases, sure. Okay. But if it was just one rogue FBI agent off on a frolic or detour, no, right? And so that's the problem here, right? The damage is, you know, yes, this case has some exceptional facts, but Bivens is not a Bivens is not case specific. Bivens is categorical. Okay. Um, all right. So let's go back to Bivens. So Bivens is decided in 1971. Um, now, Bobby, there's a pretty widely held view, especially among more conservative jurists and commentators, and we saw some of this yesterday, that Bivens was a bolt from the blue, right? That Bivens was this remarkable arrogation of judicial power to recognize a remedy where one had previously not existed. Okay. That story is not true. Um, and that's part of my frustration with Justice Kennedy's opinion is before he even gets to the analysis, his whole framing is wrong. Um, until 1971, there was actually a fairly robust regime for suing federal officers for damages. It was just under state law. Uh-huh. Right. So for constitutional violations, even for constitutional violations, right? That you could. I mean, so if we go back to, I mean, this is. This, I don't mean to get. Are you talking about like weeds. common law trespass claims for a for a, a federal investigator entering your home? Exactly. And you know, folks don't have. I mean, so I've written a lot about this. Folks can go read the article that Carlos Vasquez and I published in the Pennsylvania Law Review a couple of years ago on the subject. Um, but let's just jump to a, a really helpful data point in Bivens itself. The Nixon administration's argument against recognizing a freestanding constitutional cause of action for damages was that the Fourth Amendment could be appropriately vindicated by New York state tort law, right? That that Bivens could sue the individual officers for trespass. Right. Can, so what does that mean for these particular uh, these particular plaintiffs? Could they have sued under New York State? So here's the problem. Battery right. So this, is, so this is why folks need to go read my, Carlos in my article. Right. The problem is that between 1971 and today, there have been two different developments running in opposite directions. Big development. Big development number one um, is something called the Westfall Act. Right, which Congress enacted in 1988, and which was designed to take non-constitutional tort claims, right, to sort of good old-fashioned like negligence claims yeah. against federal officers, and turn them into federal tort claims against the federal government. Right. So the Westfall right. Act basically says if you ever bring a random tort claim against a federal officer based on something he did within the scope of his employment. We, the United States, are going to fall on the officer's sword. Yeah, right. This this I, this reminds me of being a law clerk many years ago, and there was a, a disturbed individual that kept suing all the judges, kept suing the clerks, mm-hmm. kept suing the mm-hmm. court staff, and and it was a relief that the government would step in, right. and it was just, it got converted into a claim against the government. I mean, th- or or you know, uh, imagine a you know an, a, a a food and drug uh, uh, sorry a, a meat inspector. Right, who on his way to a plant gets into a car accident while driving an official government vehicle on official government right. business, right? Yeah. Pretty good argument that it's actually, you know, responsible in that circumstance for the federal government to mm-hmm. take the mantle of liability and deflect it away from the officer who was just doing his job. So that's the Westfall Act. What was the second big development? So the second big development is as the court becomes more conservative in this time period, mm-hmm. it becomes more hostile to the general project of federal common law remedies. So there's actually a real move to tailor back 
implied statutory causes of action during this time period, Mm -hmm. right, which gets analogized to Bivens that, listen, for the same reason why we shouldn't assume Congress meant to make a private statute privately enforceable, we shouldn't assume that constitutional rights are privately enforceable. Yeah, I see what you're saying. This connects up with things like County of Sacramento v. Lewis, cases like that. Alexander v. Sandoval, Gonzaga v. Doe. I mean, there's a long thread here. And the... The Supreme Court never ties these two together, right? In a 2001 case called Malesko, there's a two-justice concurrence by Scalia and Thomas that says the hostility to Bivens is of a piece right. with this other move. But you can see that. This is all. This all reminds me of Rehnquist's statement in, I think it was County of Sacramento, where he says, we don't want to turn substantive due process into a font of tort litigation. There, there's this general concern about tort litigation becoming yep. this plague on federal officers as they go about their business. Okay. Um, except, right, that the separation of powers objection, I think, is poorly taken here because whereas when you have a federal statute, it's entirely correct to assume that Congress is the dispositive voice about who can enforce that statute and for what. When you have a constitutional right, that's the court's job. And so that brings us, I guess, to the question of what's novel about what the court did that makes it seem like so different in kind from what was going on before. Okay. So what happened yesterday, right, was Justice Kennedy for a four-justice majority, right, four out of six is a majority, um, basically takes the Scalia concurrence in Malesko and turns it into a majority opinion. Um, And he says, listen, Bivens is not something we should really be doing. Right? It really is not appropriate for us to be recognizing common law causes of action for constitutional violations, except in circumstances where we've done it in the past. So it's sort of a limited to its facts. We're not willing to out and out say it was wrongly decided to begin with, but we're kind of hinting that it was. But we're willing to let precedent stand insofar as it got to a few fact patterns, right. but no other. So there's one, I, I mean, I don't want to be too harsh. There's one slice, slice of daylight, right? So, the, so there are three pro-Bivens Supreme Court cases. Bivens itself, which is a Fourth Amendment violation by law enforcement officers. Okay, so that's still That's in. like the classical yeah. Bivens case. Um, Davis versus Passman, 1979, sex discrimination, right, by a federal employer. Okay, so that's still that's in. still in. And Carlson versus Green, 1980, cruel and unusual punishment by a federal prison guard. Right. So that's still in, but not private prisons. Not I mean, there's lots of. Right. OK. Um, so what Kennedy says, if, if it's one of those three contexts, you're fine. Um, and he says, otherwise, it is, quote, a new context, unquote. And we should ask whether there are special factors. Okay. That so it's not, it's not no new context. It's new context requires a balancing test with this multi-factor analysis. So that's what he says. Um, but the way he discusses special factors, it is pretty clear that there's going to be almost no circumstance. Well, what are the relevant special factors? What are the what are the things you go down the list? So the the, the Kennedy opinion basically says like almost anything, right? Anything that would cause us to be at all wary, right, of recognizing a new damages remedy. Which, if your view of Bivens is that it's a you know it's an affront on the separation of powers and it's really not our business, is just about everything. Um, right. So, so here on page 16 of the slip opinion, he says the proper test for determining whether a case presents a new Bivens context. This is how we write. Um, if the case is different in a meaningful way from the previous Bivens cases decided by this court, of which there are like three, then the context is new. Right. So, so that's a new context. Then we get to special factors. Right. Um, so how do we know if there are special factors? Well, um, is there any reason why we should be worried that it's not the court's job? 
Well, and the answer is yes, if you think that Bivens itself is all an affront to the separation of powers. So it, well, in particular, though, for, for this particular case, that's where national security considerations are going to creep into the picture, maybe one of multiple places. Well, so he said a case might differ in a meaningful way because of the rank of the officers involved. Right. So wholly apart from national security, if you're suing senior officers, that's right. a special factor. Um, right. The constitutional right at issue, the generality or specificity of the official action, the extent of judicial guidance as to how an officer should respond to the problem or emergency to be confronted, the statutory or other legal mandate under which the officer was operating, the risk of disruptive intrusion by the judiciary into the function of other branches, or the presence of potential special factors that previous Bivens cases did not consider. So I hear all that and I think this is just typical multi-factor balancing test type considerations that if someone wants to construe those yeah. and to get one outcome, they can do it and they can construe it to get a different outcome if they want I to. really disagree. I, I think Kennedy is saying, dear lower courts, right, hear us clearly, okay? If you get a Bivens or Davis or Carlson-like fact pattern, fine. Otherwise, think twice and then think a third time and then think some more before you exercise the judicial power of recognizing a remedy. I agree that that's the, the, the tone of it and the, the, the shadow that it casts. Uh, but boy, those those are just a lot of different factors and you could really play with that in, in yeah. different directions. So I'm not as optimistic. Not, maybe it's not so narrow as, as it seems. Well, especially, least, especially, so let's turn to right, because especially because of how he describes why national security in this context is a special factor. Yeah, that's, that's of course, the, the fun for me is to then come to how this plays out in a national security related case. Okay. So, so he, uh, I, I would characterize some of the court's treatment of national security, which comes up framed as a deference question, mm -hmm. as it generally does in these types of cases. He makes a particular kind of argument that I've characterized as comparative institutional uh, legitimacy, as distinct from the equally common comparative institutional competence argument, the difference being that Comparative institutional competence is when the government or the, the judge, in this case, would claim that the uh, executive branch is especially likely to get the right answer, that judges are going to be too much at risk of getting it wrong on some practical determination. So Sorry. Yeah, and, but that comparative legitimacy, it's not really about accuracy. It's just about whose job is this. All right, so I want to read two paragraphs, and I want to, and I want to fight about them. Um, so this is on page 19 of the slip opinion. Yeah, that's, that's this, you've got the same stuff I've right. pulled out here. So here's Kennedy. National security policy is the prerogative of the Congress and president. Judicial inquiry into the national security realm raises concerns for the separation of powers entrenching on matters committed to the other branches. These concerns are even more pronounced when the judicial inquiry comes in the context of a claim seeking money damages rather than a claim seeking injunctive or other equitable relief. The risk of personal damages liability is more likely to cause an official to second-guess difficult but necessary decisions concerning national security policy. Um, editor's note, even though he later talks about how indemnification means it's the federal government that's on the hook. Close editor's note. For these and other reasons, courts have shown deference to what the executive branch has determined is essential to national security. Indeed, courts traditionally have been reluctant to intrude upon the authority of the executive and military national security affairs unless Congress specifically has provided otherwise. Congress has not provided otherwise here. Right? Bobby. So that's a classic comparative institutional legitimacy it's type crap. of argument. It's crap. It is total crap. Why is that crap? It seems to me, setting aside the, the important caveat that the indemnification and qualified immunity and other things may yet shield the, so, so let me go even bigger. But let, let me just finish this point yeah. that, that the idea that there is something when it's a damages claim specific to the person that that's going to get the attention of the individual and shadow their activity, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, by the way. That That's perhaps precisely what you want is to impact 
have the shadow of liability impacting their decision making. But it does seem right to me that, a, that an official who anticipates vulnerability to damages actions is going to um, police themselves. And it'll be a chilling effect, maybe a good chilling effect, way different from what you'd have if it was just injunctive relief. Okay, so, so I want to take this in two parts. First, I think the chilling effect argument is nuts. Right. That is to say, um, every government official knows that Uncle Sam is paying their bills. Right. And so I really don't buy the argument. And I don't think Kennedy can say it with a straight face because he separately says the real problem here is it's the United States. Right. The U.S. is on the hook for damages. Wait, would the U.S. be on the hook for damages if it went forward as a Bivens case yes. and there was not qualified immunity? Yes. Yes. And yes. As long as it was scope of employment. Right. So it's covered no matter what. Yes. And, you know, there's, and there's no consequences for the individual. I'd be very. I mean, you know, in the. I, so first of all, these are you know these are all former government employees, right? So yeah. you know, but even if they were current government employees, no. What but, about but, do, do they lawyer up in that scenario and bear the personal cost of getting litigated? No, getting they, no, the U.S. represents them yeah. or pays private lawyers to do so. Okay, so I I'm I'm, I'm trying to be persuaded here. So I, I'm here. Wait, wait, I'm not I'm not to my best. Argument it's even yet. better. All right, yeah. keep going. Keep um, going. The concern about Bivens is not chilling. The concern about Bivens is separation of powers, right? The objection to Bivens is not about, oh, we might, you know, an officer might, I mean, that's what qualified immunity is Well, for. he seems to be making a chilling argument here. No, no, I know. And I think it's wrong, right? The, that the principle, of, the principle, I, I mean, both senses of the, I, I mean, both spellings, the principal and principally, <laughs> right? Um, objection to Bivens is it's an arrogation of judicial power, Right, that's because right. they're usurping the congressional role and deciding there should be a damage. well, and they're intruding, right? They're intruding into the prerogatives of the political branches, right? That's the real sort of I think that's the best argument against Bivens. Bobby, how is it possibly the case that a damages suit 15 years after the fact is a greater intrusion into the prerogatives of the executive branch in a national security case than a bloody injunction in the middle of a military operation? So I think your point you, you've raised, I'm hearing two different arguments for why the chilling effect idea of intrusion is, is misplaced. One is they're covered. They're covered lock, stock, and barrel. There's no actual real, there's no reason for, if you were an executive branch official who found out about a suit, some general counsel should set them down and say, don't worry, here's all the ways you're covered. It's not a big deal. This is just like when we get sued institutionally. And then secondly- the, We get sued. It, and so then, the, yeah, right. <laughs> hey, we're state employees. Um, so there's no reason to worry about that form of intrusion. It seems like th that sounds pretty persuasive to me. Um, the paragraph you read from talks about the chilling effect as an exacerbating factor, yeah. though. So even if even if you're right that that's that's not a persuasive exacerbating factor, that leaves the baseline claim. He starts with judicial inquiry into the national security realm is what I would describe as a a. a comparative competence question that you just shouldn't touch it. Now, I think that claim actually requires, if you take the chilling effect out, yep. it requires some work to explain, okay, why is it judges can't go there? Because judges do go there. The The next paragraphs after the ones you read present the uh, the counter <laughs> limitations, right? right. They say, Hamdi, on, right. They say, on the other hand, national security, I think the phrase is, it's not a talisman to be waived to make the courts go away. See Hamdi, see Bumedian. You know, this is how this type of writing always occurs. It's, it's a kabuki theater or a liturgical performance where you begin by right. saying national security is off limits, see Egan. But, but on the other hand, we're not waving our roles, right. see Bumedian. But, but I want to, the sentence I really want to, to focus on, though, is the sentence in the middle of the paragraph of page 19. These concerns are even more pronounced when the judicial inquiry comes in the context of a claim seeking money damages rather than a claim seeking injunctive or other equitable relief. I just don't understand that. Like, yeah, I, I think you've made a good argument that, that, that it's not ex exacerbated because of the damages element. And so what's interesting about that is 
it leaves in place the argument, look, it's just intrusive to national security then. Just you shouldn't interfere there. That's a hell of a claim. And and by the way, if it's right, then isn't injunctive relief availability Worse. equally vulnerable, well, right? And this is my point. So 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 my objection to this opinion, Bobby, is that there's an interesting debate to have. Well, so I have two objections. One is that they get the whole historical premise of Bivens wrong, right? And so the so they start on the wrong foot, right? Because they've completely misunderstood right. how remedies evolved up to this point. Right. Fine. That's, a, that's, that's not doing all the work here. It's it's really just we don't want to get involved because of the chilling effect no, no, and but, it's national security. But the, the problem is this is going to have implications outside of national security. And that's why – so I'm frustrated about the Fed court part of that because the Fed court's part of that is going to screw up the doctrine far afield of national security. And if folks want to see more on this, I have a long post on just security from Monday afternoon about this. Excellent post. Um, on the, uh, here's your $5. Um, <laughs> now we're even. But the national security point, Bobby, I mean, I wrote a piece, you know, 47 years ago called National Security and Bivens after Iqbal, right, where I tried really hard to explain why because that was the first time we sort of saw the nod in this direction that national that Bivens especially makes no sense in national security cases. And I have to say, like, you know, if you accept the premise of that argument, then you should think that courts have no role to play, period. Yeah, it does seem like the upshot of all of this could be that actually there's more doctrine that needs to get re- revoked. Well, and so this leads me to think, right, that this is actually not about national this, – this or that something is amiss in you – know, something is rotten in Denmark, right? That this is not actually about concerns about national security interference. This is hostility to damages. Mm-hmm. And, right, because if – what I'm trying to say is if the real objection is judicial interference – then we should be talking yes. about you know the travel ban litigation, right? Right, which is an injunction no, against think, national security. Absolutely, policy. and I think and I think that was my first thought in reading those passages. I thought this is a you know, it doesn't bode terribly well uh, for the travel ban litigants from a certain perspective if they really mean it that way. But, but I think but, you, but, I th- but the but the sentence I objected to, right? You right. know, damages are worse than injunctions. Exactly, and so that cuts the other way. And and I think you're right to say that it feels like what this really is about is just hostility to damages actions. And and I wonder to what extent um, someone who's more steeped in this area would say like, no, no, you're you're missing some nuance of vulnerability for the executive branch official who does get sued for damages. There is some special shadow that overhangs that. And maybe I just don't know. But but, but let's be clear. But for that, so so imagine a situation right where you actually could pierce the veil of indemnification. Okay. Right. What would have to happen for an executive official to actually pay damages? in that circumstance is a constitutional violation, right, of a constitutional right that was clearly established, right, um, at the time of the violation. Such right, that they, say, why is this a bad thing? Right. Yeah. And, no, hold on a second, and that the executive official violated by acting outside the scope of his employment, okay? Yeah. If yeah. all three of those things are true, I will argue to my last breath that there should be liability at that moment. And, and I think if you, if in the abstract, that sounds, of course, right. I think it must be the case that people are not thinking about in the abstract, but in the cynical practicalities of litigation where a suit is brought alleging these things. It shouldn't pan out, but it might. And so you're under the shadow of what might happen. I, I mean, I think that, that claim is based on a remarkably um, – out-of-touch reading of qualified immunity doctrine, which these days is so officer-protective, right? Um, I mean, the notion that you could have a case where an officer might accidentally be held liable for a good-faith mistake, given where the law is today, strikes me as, you know, 
So this is sort of a belt and suspenders correct. approach to those who are fearful of these types of interference. Does it suggest that at the end of the day, even had they prevailed then, these people were never going to get damages like they're seeking? Oh, I mean, so it, when Kennedy turns to the statutory claim and talks about qualified immunity, you know, things get even worse. Yeah. Um, so well, does but, that mean that the stakes are low, that really nothing turns on this? Because one way or the other, this case isn't going to no. proceed. And so this is exactly what drives me nuts, right? There are lots of ways to rule for the officers here without destroying Bivens' doctrine. Ah. Right. Um, and so w- qualified immunity, right, can be overcome. Qualified immunity suggests that if you can show that the law is clearly yeah, established, right, you get sure. damages. Right. By foreclosing Bivens, you're creating absolute immunity, right? right? Because you're saying if you have a kind yeah. of case where special factors, counsel hesitation, doesn't matter if it was clear that you can't discriminate on the basis of race or national origin, right, or religion. So clearly the, the, the special factors test looks to you like this is the death knell for a wide swath of Bivens' actions, which is going to produce basically blanket immunity. Maybe it won't turn out that way, but it does seem like the you, you look across the pattern over, you know, going back to the 80s, yep. in, in case law across multiple doctrines, there's general hostility to damages yep. as a means of regulating government uh, ex post government officers. And, and, and so, you know, one response might be, well, Congress can fix it. Well, sure. But, right. I mean, well, that, I mean, that is the explicit position Kennedy takes, right? He says, look, if, if, if this is supposed to be the way we're going to do it, Congress is going to have to okay, say but, so. But He's not me, saying it's barred. He's saying Congress has to do it. That's fine, except that I have no faith that Congress, first of all, has any interest in providing remedies for violations of federal constitutional rights that are going to come out of the federal treasury, right? Or second of all, that it's Congress's job as opposed to the courts to vindicate constitutional protections. I mean, Justice Harlan, in his concurrence in, in, in Bivens itself, said it would be anomalous to conclude that the courts are powerless to provide remedies for violations of a document, the Constitution, that was meant to be a check on the political branches. Well, it seems to me that the, the, the big takeaway here is watch the injunctive space yes. to see, because that seems like the place where there there still is a role for the courts. But you wonder if these pressures will spill over there, or is it really damages specific? Well, and so I think it'll be the latter, Bobby, and I think that that's incoherent. And indeed, I mean, Sam Bray, you know, our mutual friend, um, and I are actually working on a paper that's going to try to argue that a bossy is part of a much larger dangerous trend where the courts have come to favor equity over law um, and that there's lots of reasons why historically it was the other way around. Well, no one knows more about equity than Sam, so I'll be interested in, in seeing what you <laughs> um, guys have to say about and that. And last word about Abbasi, though. So the last thing I was going to say is, so remember Abbasi was granted together with the Hernandez cross-border shooting case where I'm co-counsel. I'm surprised Hernandez didn't come down with it. Yeah, what do you what do you take away from that? So it seems to me that they thought Hernandez might be the case where they were going to say something big about Bivens. They've now done that in a bossy. And so now Hernandez may be narrow, and you don't think it'd go away, do you? Um, I think it might actually be reargued. Right, the fact that there's no reference in a bossy to Hernandez suggests to me that it's being decided untethered to it. And so maybe it was four four on at least one yeah, of the yeah, questions presented. Well, that's that's interesting, and the lineup would be different because not everyone the recusal pattern won't be the same. No, no. So and her, if it gets reargued, Gorsuch it be, will be if in. It, if it's reargued, it would be a nine justice. It would be everybody. Yeah. So and presumably more focused on the cross-border aspect. Correct. Although, although, well, yes, because Mesa, right, is a line officer, yeah. right, who's being accused of a Fourth Amendment violation. Yeah. So maybe so even does, Kennedy avoids, thinks that that's an appropriate Bivens case. It would seem so. But then, so here's the thing: if I'm Kennedy, right, and I want to be like, hey, everybody, I'm not killing Bivens. Um, right? I hand down Hernandez together with it. And I say, look, here's another... Yeah, yeah. Look, right? Okay, interesting. Bad Bivens, good Bivens. But that makes that makes me inclined to think your theory about let's re-argue this yeah, uh, and I, get, I get a full court on this, especially because if it's going to have a cross-border implication, yep. we want a full court. So speaking of... So really quickly, Bobby, speaking of full or fall arguments, right? The travel ban. Um, so the only... Inter- uh, there's one big thing that's happened since last we met, right? The, the president last Wednesday issued a memorandum of clarification 
um, saying that the individual provisions of the uh, executive order will go into effect whenever they go into effect. So as not so as to overcome the timing mootness which problem. Which we talked about yeah, last week. Exactly. Now, um, Bobby, I think they were too cute by half. Right. So. So, yes, I understand. Right. We're going to say it's not going to go into effect until the injunctions are lifted. But, Bobby, the way it's written, each provision goes into effect when the injunction as to that provision is lifted. What that means is that the internal vetting procedures, which are no longer enjoined, thanks to last Monday's Ninth Circuit opinion, can go into effect. Well, the Ninth Circuit issued their mandate yesterday, so it can go into effect just about immediately. And and just to be clear, this is the idea that the the whole game was supposed to be, hey, freeze things in place. We need time to look at our vetting procedures to get them to be better. The the ban was means to an end, right? Right. The ban was a temporary pause to do the vetting. Elbow room to do to do an assessment of our vetting right. procedures. Well, now that can go forward. Now the vetting is going forward without the ban, which makes you wonder, Bobby, why did we need the ban in the first place? Well, indeed, why didn't they just get this done before, before well, they got that. enjoined? Okay, so all this is just to say, I actually think that these very technical procedural moves have dramatically undermined the government's case for both a stay and on the merits. I still I think, think that's probably right. I still think the court will likely grant cert. To um, keep the heat on? Well, just out of respect to – I mean, right, we talked about this, right? The court has not turned away the government in a national security case since 9-11. I don't think to keep the heat on. I think just to sort of say, listen, we owe respect to, you know, the political branches. It's a big enough issue. We'll take it up. We'll take it up in the fall, but deny the stay. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that's right. And And then see what happens. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if something happens that gives them an out where they end up not ruling on the merits. Oh, the executive order has run its course. Well, in that case – This is dismissed. We'll yeah. vacate what happened below yeah. and we're done. I, yeah. I think that's increasingly the most I think, likely outcome. I think so, too. All right. Well, we agree. All right. So we've gone on way too long. But we promised Game of Thrones. Should we just do a lightning round? Okay. My first comment on Game of Thrones Season 7. This is all based on the trailer. It, what is it? Seven episodes we're going to get? Just seven. seven? You say just seven. I say seven glorious mini-movies. Well, you know, we're. it seems clear from the trailer that they are definitely moving forward. Fast. Stuff is going down. It, it's it's winding towards a conclusion. It, you know, wait, should we say spoiler alert in case people are actually shielding themselves? Yes, we're, yes, we're about to spoil the trailer. So right. if you don't want to, so if you haven't even looked at the trailer for season seven, yeah. I don't know what you're waiting for. All right. So having said that, to dis- disconnect if you want right. to hear this. So Cersei's talking about how she's got enemies to the north. Enemies to the east, enemies to the south, enemies to the west. The scenes seem to show Danny arriving in Westeros. I think she's I, I don't, Dragonstone, certainly. Yep. Right. Close enough. Um, I mean, no, yeah. no. I mean, Dragonstone's part of Westeros, but it's like you know the weird little right it's where, where I guess Isle of Man. Where I guess she kicks out the remaining Stannis supporters. I, and, I, who even knows? And assumes the there. throne at Dragonstone. So she walks right into that one. Um, Which was, of course, the Targaryen, you know, headquarters. So it, it you know, unlike the books, uh, it really seems like instead of spiraling ever outward, that the the showrunners are bringing this one to a boil. It looks a lot like this will be the season right. where you, hopefully, it'll give us some resolution as to the first order issue of all right, uh, can Cersei hold out? Will 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 Danny right. you know conquer basically? That's right. The, That's right. One wonders if season seven is the humans. Yes, exactly. Right, and then season yeah. eight is the is the is the white. And walkers. then whatever the whatever the mix of you know Danny and Jon Snow that comes out of uh, season seven, then season R eight plus will, L equals J. And so they, and that's clearly going to come to fruition. Let's. By the way, can I say I really hope that Danny and Jon Snow don't hook up because. That, just because just she's her just, just she's his aunt. <laughs> this is not right. Um, By and, the way, there there was a spoiler alert. Yeah, and so then you get to the next season. That, right. uh, presumably, like seven more episodes to wrap it up. Six, 
Six, six more episodes? That's what we Seven get? Seven and six. Okay. So we get six final episodes to bring it to a close. with The a, Winter King. With a f- much more magic, much more fantasy-ish and less hard hard reality. And, and then the Klingons will show up. And that's, <laughs> that's when the Klingons so, so I will just say, I mean, I mean, you know, if you know your Targaryen history, right, not that unusual for Targaryens to, to, well, to, yeah, to, to, to hook up with Targaryens. Minglings. Yeah, I'm not sure how down John is with that. Well, John doesn't know, right? So, so imagine a scenario <laughs> where where John, you know, becomes enthralled with Daenerys because, frankly, who wouldn't? Um, and only finds out well into the the courtship um, that he is in fact her nephew. Well, I guess you know it's possible given that history. Uh, it, it seems because only because only Bran knows, right? Here's an interesting thing. Like, so with George R. Martin, yeah. that sort of thing, that sort of neat package like and they end up together and they are the protagonists it all seems like a recipe for both of them being killed <laughs> off and, and you know and, in the first episode of season seven you know and sam becomes you know <laughs> the king or something um samuel tarley you never know he's, no, gonna, no, he's, he's gonna be he's gonna become like the grand maester there there is there's been sort of a, a you know a lot of positive things happening for a lot of characters this seems out of character and one possibility is yeah you know the whole setup of the series is terrible terrible things get you thinking nothing good ever happens and you feel even better when it's good in the end another possibility is the showrunner are going somewhere that George R. R. Martin wasn't going to go to, but it didn't matter because he's basically fallen behind the show. The, the White Walkers take over, and the, the, we're going to get a Hollywood ending in the series, even though George Martin's books maybe would have been darker and more complex. I'm just trying to figure out, like, if if Cersei is going to, if Cersei, well, the prophecy, right, is that Cersei actually lives a long life, right? So while, while her while her children all die, right? So so Cersei apparently is not going. The way of the red wedding anytime soon. Well, but she could be a prisoner, right? She could be she could be alive and, and just thrown in some dungeon somewhere. Um, Maybe with with the Franken Mountain. Oh gosh, yeah, I guess the mountain. We're, there's gonna, right, there's the clearly going to be some kind of you know amazing battle. Oh. You know, here, prediction time. Who will be the one at some point in this series who takes down the mountain in Frankenstein format? Will it be uh, Brienne. I think it will be Jon Snow. Ooh, that'd be a good one. I think it'll be Jon Snow. Okay, I like that. But but I know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> and, and on that note, we, we've demonstrated we know nothing about the things we talk about, but we can't talk about them at great length. So let's let our listeners go. Yeah, you probably have better things to do. Exactly. So everybody, stay safe out there. We'll be back at you next week. Adios.